both please pronounce your names correctly for me. Okay. <laughs> so my name is Sinna Bull. And my name is Dragon Miletic. Now, first things first, of course, just to set the stage, we know each other because we went to school together. Though I'm not sure if we had any classes together, but we were at the same school at the same time. Did we have any classes together? That I don't remember. I certainly didn't because I graduated actually in 2000. Oh, well then, yeah, we, uh, you and I definitely didn't. First thing, when I was looking through your, your CVs and such, you all are very diverse. So, Dragon, you, you're from Yugoslavia. Then you went to the San Francisco Art Institute. Sinna, mm. you studied in Indonesia <laughs> and then went to the San Francisco Art Institute. So I guess the question is sort of like, how did you all even sort of get to the San Francisco Art Institute, which is basically where you all met, from what I understand. So... You know, what were your childhood like? You know, how did you become creative? So, like, were your parents creative? How did you get from Indonesia and Yugoslavia to San Francisco, California? Yeah, I, the Indonesia thing is interesting. It's actually the reason why I went to Indonesia is because I wanted to go to the Art Institute. When you want to do a bachelor's degree abroad, you can get a student loan and, you know, a, a big stipend from the Norwegian government because basically education is free. But the freshman year is not covered <laughs> because the freshman year is considered something in between our last year of high school and the first year of, of uh, a bachelor's degree in the state. So the state doesn't uh, accept Norwegian students without a freshman year and the Norwegian government's educational grant does not want to give a stipend for the first freshman year. So there was this kind of in-between year. And I basically just had to take some credits to, to go straight into sophomore year. And that's why I did that at the University of Oslo and I made an exchange to go to, the, to Indonesia in, the, in one of the semesters. And Dragon? Mm, slightly different story. I have started to study art at Art Academy in my hometown, Novi Sad, basically at kind of roughly at the beginning of the so-called civil war in Yugoslavia. It was a quite interesting time for me. Um, I was a 20-something year old and full of ideas about what art was or is, but it didn't take long to really shatter that idea at the academy. And that's, I'm very, very thankful for. That was really extremely useful and helpful period for me to understand art practice at the slightly deeper level than what usually meets the eye. Uh, so um, in the atmosphere of the highest global inflation in history and the total isolation, which is called uh, economic isolation, you would have to ask yourself a few questions about why do you do these things? The answers were coming as I was getting engaged in uh, local politics and matters of communication within the sphere of, uh, of so-called former Yugoslavia. So technology became a big, important part of uh, art making and uh, and kind of expressing, if you want, and uh, kind of dealing with dealing with every day. But technological means were quite limited. I was considering all the time, you know, where this technological interest could lead me, and uh, I was interested in, needless to say, in pursuing a master degree because that would mean opportunity to leave the country and uh, you know potentially look at, explore different things with, uh, with different technologies and so on and so on. And uh, then I did start looking into prospecting different programs in the United States because Europe at the time was not necessarily, in my view, uh, a good place for somebody coming from Serbia, both financially and otherwise. So I start applying to different schools in the States. Uh, as everybody else, I was quite keen on getting in New York, but that was not possible because I didn't find any interesting programs in New York. Two programs that I found interesting were at CollArts and at San Francisco Art Institute. I applied to both. And you remember, you know, um, that each time you apply, you have to, to submit the fee. And just that 
was I don't want to get into how much that how much trouble that was at that time in Yugoslavia. Not least that each fee was about a monthly salary of a decent monthly salary. Anyways, so I did get into both schools, uh, and uh, but I, I I choose San Francisco for the city uh, because you know. Cal Arts, Los Angeles means a car. I just didn't have a time. I didn't have a means for that. So San Francisco was somehow, you know, pedestrian city was uh, closer to my um, economical means. But it also, uh, school turned out to be a little bit more experimental, which is something that I was very interested in. I want to go back, though, because both of you come, you know, you come from different cultures. So, like, of course, I'm uh, was born and raised in America. So I guess the question is like, were your parents creative? Because I always wonder about this, like how do we even get made? Like, so, you know, sort of nature versus nurture kind of an idea. So like, were your parents creative or, or how did you even find creativity in the arts and all this in your life? I wouldn't say that my parents were particularly creative in terms of artistic creativity. I don't think that that gene stems from directly from parents. But one of my grandparents, my mother's father, had artistic notes, but more on the musical side. He was um, an avid guitar player. He, was, he had uh, several bands in his youth. And, uh, well, I think all the way through through the second world war uh he was quite active uh, musician i would say but not professionally uh really as an amateur that is the only artistic gene that i was able to trace back in my family Cine? yeah <laughs> Uh, yes, I am from a very creative family. My, both my parents worked in the television, the region television, and, you know, the sort of state-run television. That one channel that we had until 1986, we only had one channel, state-run. Half an hour children's TV at six o'clock. But <laughs> <laughs> also my grandmother, she was an artist. Unfortunately, she didn't finish art school because she had kids and had to get married. But yeah, she did. She painted all her life. I wanted to do something with film because that was very close to me since I was in this film and television industry family. So I wanted to go to a film school, actually. And when I came to the San Francisco Art Institute, I thought it was a film school because this was pre-internet also. Uh, I mean, it, internet maybe was somewhat up and running, but it wasn't that easy to figure out what Art Institute was from Norway. I remember visiting the Fulbright office and they sort of gave me some brochures and, you know, for different schools. And so basically when I came to the Art Institute, I then started to uh, be interested in new genres and I switched, I swapped major to new genres from film because, uh, yeah, it just, that's where, that's where I felt like, you know, the, the sort of learning 600% of <laughs> contemporary art, conceptual art, all of these things that I was very interested in. Yeah, so that was great. That was a completely new opening for me as well as same, similar to Dragon in that sense, yeah. When I got to the San Francisco Art Institute, I was a photography major. That's how I got accepted in. And and within a first semester, I was like, screw it. And I switched to new genres. And you know, in many ways, it was possibly some of the best education I had, but it, there were other parts of it that were not the greatest. But the part that I absolutely loved about it was that was the first time in my entire life where I walked into a classroom and I basically you, the conversations that were in the critiques were never about technical stuff. They were sitting there like, you know, what brush were you using or what camera were you using or you know, lighting or anything because it was just about was the artistic expression being done in the right way? Like, and, and it was just about that. And I, I was the most amazing critiques and, and fabulous education. So I thoroughly enjoyed it and I still appreciate it to this day. Mm. So that's my little two cents on it. <laughs> Dragon, were you also new genres? Yeah, definitely. But I was, I enrolled new genres. So mm. this is the, really the program that I found the most interesting, uh, from the perspective of Novi Sad, Serbia in 1998, 
uh, via a printed catalog because the internet uh, was available in Serbia at that time. And I did surf the internet periodically for a limited period of time because of, uh, I mean, not limited, you know, you just have like a slot of like, I don't know, how many minutes or there's some kind of a, I forgot what is it called actually, you know, like you have, you have some kind of coupons, you know, like, and you just enter something and it's like, you are half an hour online and things like that. Anyway, the SFI website was uh, very different at that time than it is today or, you know, so it's not to, to be compared. So catalogs were really the means of communication for all the schools. Uh, I rightfully received one of those and it did really appear the most interesting again back to this kind of you know like you know experiment because this is something that really attracted me a lot to the art institute now what are you all doing these days so to jump ahead sorry Mm -hmm. still experimenting (laughs) same still doing the same thing really what are you all doing sort of like professionally like are you teaching are you full-time practicing artists like so like what are you you know, I guess like your, your day-to-day job these days? Yeah, I've been um, both teaching and we both completed our PhD programs just recently. We have um, uh, some kind of a PhD in the arts here. That's, I guess, coming to the States as well a little bit, but maybe in Prague they, they have it or in Czech. I don't know. It's more com- common in Europe. At the moment, yeah. Yeah. So that has been very fruitful to, uh, to re-engage in the work and the engaged uh, group critiques and uh, forums, seminars, also cross-disciplinary engagements and trying to figure out what an art PhD could be, what's useful for it. You know what I mean? Well, okay. I was going to ask you all about that because <laughs> right. like, Sina, you not only went back, you got an MA in art history. And you've gotten a PhD and then Dragon, you now also have a PhD as well. I mean, I thought I was being very, you know, top of the heap getting an MFA, but then you all go and get not only an MFA, but then a PhD. I guess the question is sort of like, why did you feel the drive to get a PhD? Yeah, I think back to that new genres, you know, I think it's just never uh, wanted to leave Studio 9 <laughs> or Studio 10. It's just such a fruitful and uh, an interesting mode of being in, you know, this kind of uh, educational mode where you expand your um, uh, perspectives with other points of views and you, you feel like you grow as a human and as an artist by being challenged by other artists. And, and it's just, yeah. It's just the best way to be both. Uh, I mean, I also love, I did a lot of teaching and I love teaching as well. I think that is very similar to entering an art program as a student and engaging in it from a professor's point of view. It's, it's similarly interesting. It's just being in the art educational environment and engage in the expanding notion of what art could be. That part of art is more interesting to us, I think, than the sort of sales and gallery world, I guess. Agreed. I mean, if I could stay in that world, it would be amazing. I mean, a lot of the conversations I have with people is about like some of the most quote unquote, like successful artists, but like artists that continue to practice and continue to make work and basically, you know, don't get beaten down or whatever, submit and give up. They often have like uh, peers that they continually are keeping in contact with. They have groups and, and, you know, critique groups or a studio space where they are sharing knowledge and information with other people and being pushed and all this kind of stuff. That seems to be something that's very important to sort of the artistic practice is not only being self-motivated, but also having peers around you to in some way support you as well. Yeah, certainly. That's, that's certainly. But uh, there's a, there's a also um, another aspect of people in Norway, at least artists in Norway, being, or in Scandinavia, I can say, actually being interested in going back to PhD and doing the PhD is because it is quite a privilege because it is a paid three years of, uh, you know, working on uh, researching whatever you are interested in researching. So it is an extraordinary opportunity to uh, focus into whatever you are focusing into. So this is uh, this is a slightly different, you know, because that, I think that that needs to be kept in the perspective because, you know, like in the P, in, when you say in a PhD student in the States, that means one thing 
But once you're a PhD or artistic PhD candidate here in Scandinavia, that means something really different. Even in England, that means that most likely you're paying for your education here. You're really paid to do your research. So that is a very, very appealing aspect to it. I know Norway and all of Scandinavia is amazing with supporting and funding education and the arts. Like it's I wish I was born there. It's astounding. Mm. Like I'm I'm very sad I'm an American in that in that particular sense. But just to be clear, you're saying you went to get a PhD and the government paid you to do your education. Yeah, you're a full time employee of the university. You're a full time researcher and hence paid for that. Oddly enough, now it can make much more sense on why you would choose to go back for a PhD mm. then because you know, in America, I'm thinking you'd have to take out student loans to do exactly. this and all this. So it's like, why would you do that? Why would you put yourself under all that stress? But if you're being paid to do it, I'm on your side. I totally get it. Uh, there's also a great other side. Just, I mean, of course, it's very important that it is a, a full-time position. But even if it wouldn't be, I would do it because it's also a gateway to engage with serious research it opens up a field of a research network that you can engage with and you get colleagues and yeah. So the whole sort of, and also the type of teaching positions you are legible for after completing your PhD is broader than if you'd only have a master's. So there are more reasons than only just a paid position. Yeah, I only mentioned that as one aspect. Mm. One of the aspects which mm. is not unimportant that's all yeah but the reason for taking the phd is not really oh yeah i'm just gonna get you know like my full-time job mm. uh, for three years and you know that's uh there because first of all it's very competitive needless to say mm. so it's not something that you're just kind of you know like walk in there and you can start working here no so it's, it's extremely competitive competitive um you do have to have quite good uh, reason to to do it, you know, and to convince the juries, which are international, practicing artists or um, theoreticians or whatever, that you should be paid for that research. So, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I'm all for it. Hmm. Are you both Norwegian citizens at this point? I'm not. No. I'm actually, I'm Serbian and American so far. I did apply for Norwegian citizenship. And I imagine that's not an easy process. It's, it's at this stage, it's not uneasy either. It just takes time. That's all because, you know, I've lived here for 15 years. So that's, it's a, that's a matter of quota. So I have that quota. I, uh, you have to demonstrate some basic knowledge of language and history and so on and you know you take a couple of tests and you know and then you're evaluated and then you know once you pass those tests you know which is in my opinion for somebody who lives here for 15 years are fairly simple and fundamental uh, then everything else is just a formality i would say all right St stupid question uh, are you all married yes we are lawfully married Lovely. Okay. I, it's because I saw all kinds of things, collaborative, duo, all kinds of different things, but no, nowhere did I see whether you all were just, you know, together or whether you were like legally married or anything. Married in City Hall in San Francisco. Nice. Very nice. 2005. Well, and that brings up like sort of the issue of like collaboration because some people, some specifically creative people are really, really great with collaboration and can work together with not just their collaborating partners, but other people very well. Sure. Some people are very individual and very selfish. I'm probably one of those, but the, so like, you know, was it easy and is it still easy to collaborate or is it always sort of a little bit of a challenge? Do you all have a... Is it is does it always go smoothly? Are there problems? Like, what's the 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 how does the, the whole collaborative process work for the two of you? All of it. Well, like, well, I guess like this also, like, so is there like a separation of power? Like, one of you is the concept and one of you is the technical, or is it fully integrated that you you will both sort of just work together as one unit? I think what's interesting with us is that we started collaborating before we became a couple. And we basically collaborated for about a half a year 
and we didn't dare to tap into the sort of love thing because we thought it's going to it basically it's going to ruin the collaboration so <laughs> so we have a very special i think way that we lift each other up and sort of just add on to each other's ideas and we don't really have a division of labor or anything like that we just uh, do most of the things that we do together of course, one of us could be, you know, very preoccupied with one aspect for a longer period of time, but then we are so eager to show each other, you know, where things are going. And then we start discussing it right away. And yeah, it's very entangled. We do have a very distinct points of view. And that I think is very important and very good. So we don't think alike. Oftentimes we do have a shared preoccupation, if you want, but uh, there's a there's a lot of dialogue that is a part of this collaboration, and this dialogue is probably something the most interesting that is happening uh, in a collaboration because this is where you are realizing that things can always be different, and that this is kind of something that moves at least my way of thinking about, the, let's say, about the world, right? Is that there's that other perspective, you know, which is kind of always close to you, you know, and that's a privilege. To me, that is that is the most interesting part of this collaboration. So it's like, you know, whether I pick a, I don't know, something and then, you know, show it to Sine or she would pick up something and show it to me and then kind of, you know, that's kind of, and then start the feedback is, is not important. It, what is important is that, to me at least, that what is important is that that, that ongoing dialogue that is what is important. And we are, I think we are also both very collaborative in and of ourselves. So we came, both came from other collaborators or collaborative and, collectives before we started our collaboration. And we collaborate. And we collaborate with others, you know, now and then. And we have, yeah, we have ongoing collaborations. We do like to have that uh, multiple perspective and dialogue around art making. That is something that we value very highly. Well, I find that that's a thing that's very, it sounds bad when I say like it's very popular these days, but it is very popular these days, this collectives and collaborative works yeah. and things like this. Like it, it seems like something that, you know, stupid things like I wish somebody had told me the benefits of it because the amount of opportunities, whether it's residencies or grants or any institutional exhibitions that the collectives are able to participate in or, or get grants for or whatever seems to be very important these days. I I'm seeing it more and more, not just an opportunity, but actually as a resource to be able to continue to make work. Yeah, I mean, a little bit back to what you said earlier, that you have this uh, group of people that, you know, give you feedback and that keeps you going. And also that idea of being part of something that's bigger than yourself, that is very motivating. So I think that's, that's definitely part of it. So now we're sort of faced with really... Um, big global problems and it feels very you feel very little al alone and you feel that you know if you could collect more voices you you have bigger footprints or something i guess the work that we do dragon was uh, touching upon it in terms of the you know selecting school and the way that he wanted to go forward with art and technology and of course me my focus on film and moving image these are, you know, early interests that we still are very occupied with. So we are in that kind of little niche where, you know, art and technology meet and where we try to push the boundaries between what kind of technologies we can get to do different things and basically have an artistic point of view of the role of technology in society through creative and uh, aesthetic modes of experimenting. I guess that's where we find ourselves constantly coming back to these questions. Well, I mean, that's something that I was wondering about is like 20 years ago when we were in school, video was still sort of a reasonably outside of the traditional forms of art. Is it easier or is there still sort of skepticism and pushback for sort of video and installation work and this kinds of stuff these days? I wouldn't say the video is uh, outside of the quote-unquote mainstream these days because of obvious technological reasons. I mean, it's just so easy to make it, you know. So, and there's, I think that there's a plethora of 
videos in every venue these days. So, uh, and you know, needless to say that it becomes uh, the artist also became because of the technological availability. The artist became a lot more cross disciplinary, even you know, like you know, painters or you know, I don't know, people who are working with more traditional media. They are picking up the video and you know, like doing something with it. So that's that became very very common. Uh, so I wouldn't think that um, that the video today is kind of on the margins of a contemporary art practice per se, but it it does participate within the art economy, if you want, in a different way. And this is something that can be seen, for example, in places like art fairs. You can go into any collection of the contemporary art museum, you know, and you would. You know, you just kind of see like how much of the collection is actually really moving images, you know, like or video specifically or video installation. So then you kind of, you know, maybe understand, okay, the reality today, in the, if you come to Oslo and, you know, go out for a little gallery walk, you would encounter a good amount of video works. But if you would go to a contemporary art museum, I'm not sure how many video works you would be encountering in the collection, particularly displayed. So that's a kind of uh, maybe discrepancy between, you know, what is uh, what do we have in kind of every day as a video and what do we have really kind of acknowledged within the mainstream art institutions as the status of the video. Yeah, but I think it just boils down to the very simple fact that people need to have something to hang on the wall or, you know, to, it's yeah. easy. Video is not that easy to, you know, find a way to display it easily. You know, it's not as sort of straightforward as a painting or a sculpture. But what I wanted to highlight was more the fact that because we push technology and, and work with it in a very, I feel, interesting and challenging mode, that also I was sort of more going along that idea of collaboration, that the way that we work now with technology also entails a lot of interesting collaborations across disciplines other than art. So we are sort of tapping into engineering and robotics, and we get to meet these really fantastic people that have really, they're really skilled in their field and they stretch their capabilities in order to um, accommodate some of our ideas and we get ideas by their specific uh, knowledge. And so I think that is a very, very interesting way of working. And we were very lucky that the Norwegian National Museum just recently purchased one of our very challenging works that we've been working on since 2012, actually. So it takes a long time to develop these sort of kinetic video installations that we now are very engaged in. That is something that I feel was a very was a big step, that we developed something as experimental like that and that we uh, managed to not give up and work on it for such a long time and then eventually the National Museum go ahead and buy it. And we also have, we got some prizes at the Media Art Festival in Japan, among other things, for that work. So, yeah. So it's sort of, it's possible to work that way even though it's not the type of work that you encounter in an art fair. Mm. It's still possible to stay true to your interest rather than to conform to some kind of easiest way out well and and that's one of those sort of characteristics that i find really sort of difficult with the creative industries as a whole because somebody in another job you know a lawyer like they don't have to conform to any sort of you know societal norms or whatever or, or industry norms to be able to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever whereas in the arts there is that you know, drive to be independent, to drive to, to express your own ideas and your own voice and in your own vision and your own mediums, you know, and then there are so many different avenues to, to do sort of have a artistic career because some people strive for the sales, some people strive for the institutional exhibitions, some people strive for the uh, academic, you know, teaching credentials and this kinds of stuff. And so there's so many different definitions of success in this industry depending on sort of what avenue you're you know art fairs is another one kind of thing and it's so it's really hard to sort of you know define and then also keep self-motivated and and strive to continually grow and get better yeah i think you have to find out what drives you if sales drives you start painting you know what i mean <laughs> but if you're curious about certain types of 
moving image technologies and you are just like dying to find out how that's going to look or, you know, how that may completely change our perception of something, then, you know, that's going to be the, way, the one thing that drives you. And then sales is less important. I mean, that's why we teach and engage in other types of day jobs to keep going as artists because we can never rely on sales. That's not that's not the path for us. For me, it's and for I think to both of us is that we identify very much with research and with the researcher uh, position in the university and teaching. Obviously, is also very important there. There is this um, idea of continuously sort of you know break new boundaries, finding out new things, being curious about something, and that is what drives us. That is this kind of continuous research and and going forward with experiments and feel like we're at the edge of what we know and that we sort of grapple at the edge of the unknown so to speak. That is, that is something that is very much the driving factor of, of our work. And that is a place I feel that can be realized much more in the educational institution as a professor and teacher and researcher rather than an independent artist in a, in a gallery or a, yeah, where you have to be maybe. But I don't know. I mean, it's also, it depends. People are, have different ways of going about their activities but it's also the fact that you know that we love that educational mode that made us take that path i guess it comes back to the new genre <laughs> new genres department <laughs> absolutely i'm still on your side i totally agree with you i mean there's a certain sort of freedom that the academic industry sort of allows us like because we we can we can put more time and effort into uh, you know, testing and trying and pushing boundaries because we are not reliant on acceptance or even even getting something right. You know, so like in the academic world, you're sort of allowed to get things wrong, but that might be a stepping stone to something else. And that's perfectly acceptable. But if you're in the sales part of it, you do a, a bad exhibition, your entire career could be ruined. So the academic industry definitely gives us a, a bit of a luxury and a, a privilege to to test and try and research and and fail. Yeah. And not the least the possibility to collaborate across uh, other knowledge fields. Absolutely. And that is, I think, becoming more and more acute these days because we're having to address very, very uh, complex problems with global warming and migration and these issues that we're facing. And, and I think we really have to sort of collaborate across borders, across educational and knowledge, yeah, educational fields to figure out how to go forward. Uh, you know, as an off question, has the situation with COVID and the, the pandemic and a lot of things like the art fairs and a lot of art exhibitions and stuff going digital, has that been sort of helpful or, or detrimental to some of your opportunities? I'd say the latter, because our work is really something that exists in a physical space. Most of the works that we produce and work on are iterative in nature, uh, meaning that exhibition for us is not the final stage in a process. It is a stage in a process, an opportunity to obtain feedback, to test things, to experiment to engage in dialogue with the audience on the work or on the matters that the work is tackling. So I would say the latter. Yeah, but we also faced real difficulties with one project that we're, another collective project that we wanted to uh, be very much uh, working in the exhibition space and specifically targeting uh, a wider type of audience and have a kind of participatory type of exhibition experience for many people and that had to be totally closed down yeah. that was mayor that failed basically and uh, that whole exhibition because it became just a normal exhibition instead of becoming uh, an experimental space mm. so that was a bit sad but that's i think many people experienced exactly that during covid that you know they had to close down and abandon their initial ideas well, it gives you an opportunity to revise it and, and revisit it and do it again later. Yes, obviously. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And no, we, I mean, like when, when, when you fail, you learn something, right? Yeah. It's an opportunity to learn. So the failure is not necessarily negative. 
It is something that is valid. It gave us uh, a valid experience that we will consider uh, and we are considering and it already moved things in different projects because we learned something from that experience. No, definitely. But it's, of course, it's a little bit, it's hard not to be a little bit disappointed, of course, when you have to close something that you were just starting, you know. It's a very American thing. I know that, so I'm totally making fun of myself on this, but like the, the, the word failure has a very much of a negative connotation. Whereas in the creative industries, like we fail all the time, you know, like the only things that people publicly generally see are the successes, but they don't see all the testing and the trials and the mistakes and the, the thing, the things that we fail at leading up to it. I mean, I have far more failures in my career than I do successes. And I'm sure most people do. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. That is, that is universal and global. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I wouldn't limit this to a creative industry. I would particularly like point out to technological development, you know, is based on that. As a matter of fact, I think if we were a little bit less afraid of failing, we could probably learn faster. Mm. I think a lot of sort of of hesitation and that sort of stiffness that we get when we try something new or, you know, are asked to step into an unfamiliar territory is because we're so afraid of failing, you know, that, I mean, that's just so normal to fail and it's good because you learn enormously every time we fail. I'm happy to fail. I just don't want people to see me fail. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm happy to fail in private. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. And we could probably be we're trained to be more secure about failing. I guess, but if you look at if you look at new genres, new genres was an opportunity to fail in public. And this is to me, that was the one of the biggest schools of new genres. This is exactly, it was scary, needless to say, but, you know, it was, it was an opportunity to kind of face that, I guess, unjustly infused sentiment of that failure is something bad. This is something that we could do collectively in new genres. And this is something that I celebrate to this day. I still love it. I mean, I wouldn't even be able to do this podcast in the way that I'm doing it if mm. I hadn't had that new genres education. I mean, mm. so like everything they instilled in me is still part of my practice these days. So I love it. And I love that it was always about art, period. Not like, you know, like, oh, painters talking about painting or printmakers mm. talking about printmaking. It was just creative people talking about being creative and that is such a, a difference than the very, very structured and very nuanced, uh, you know, disciplines and departments that generally existed throughout the academic world. Mm. I think you're right. It was very genuinely asking what art could be. Mm. And everybody was guided into that space in a very diligent and extraordinary effective manner well as, as paul Kossel said you know it's a, basically it's a, it's a space that was kind of an anti-consensus right you know because the moment you find a definition you know it slips out and becomes something else or in my mind this is a, such a great uh, way of describing what new genres is right <laughs> you cannot describe it it always kind of it slips out you know the moment you describe it it becomes something else and then you start describing it. And this to me is like really a motivation to do what I do. Not to be too sentimental. I think actually the, um, there was a quite a sort of specific uh, rules and systems, the way it was constructed. And I think it's very possible to create that in, in art education today as well. The way that it was con- the, these group critiques were conducted. Sure. So uh, I think there were some really great principles about how, for example, one really important principle that when you present work, you actually don't really talk. You don't step forward and present it with words and try to explain and excuse yourself or try to defend it in any way. But you, as an artist, you step back and you listen mm. to what this work does mm. in the room and how this work engages with the audience. Mm. And you make notes, but you don't talk. And I think that is just one very, very simple rule that was so effective. It was. It was one. It was the first time I had ever experienced that because at all the other institutions I'd gone to, they was always present your work and then stand there and explain it, and then the critique would start. And I right. remember 
you know, I, I don't remember if it was Tony or Paul or whatever, but the, I remember at one point I, I stood up, you know, getting ready to like present my work and they were like, sit down, you're not here to talk. You've presented your artwork and your artwork exists without you there to talk about it. Ooh. So it has to tell its story without you there. <laughs> and that just sort of shocked the hell out of me. I was like, oh, oh, you're right. <laughs> like I'm not going to be there to like defend it when I present when I put it in an exhibition. So, I mean, it's a, they were very smart in the yeah. way that they sort of pushed yeah. us. But boy, it was difficult. I think that is the uh, way to talk about new genres today. Because otherwise, when somebody listens to, for example, this podcast, I could be like, "Oh yeah, I wish I was there 20 years ago." But unfortunately, that's not possible. But I think you know we could talk about it more as a form of educational formula or a system or a model that can be used in classrooms today everywhere well these days there is a lot of like pandering to the students and letting the students sort of talk their way out of things i'm sorry if i'm projecting but they the, they <laughs> they get to make excuses and do all this kind of stuff and, I, and i'm constantly of the position of like look when you're making art it you're not there to defend it even the the title or, or any sort of supporting artist statement that you put with it, there's no guarantee that anybody's going to read those things. So either the work expresses the idea or it doesn't, and you cannot rely on any other sort of thing to support it. And a lot of people don't seem to understand that. I, I feel like sometimes I'm in the minority in the art world with that position. Yeah, well, I think it was a little bit the time of the the whole sort of, um, what should I say, the the feel of the time that the leftover of the 60s, you know, where the death of the author and the, the collective uh, forces that, that brought up an artwork wasn't really thought of as one single artist anyway, even if you wanted it to be. So that, I think it was a breath of that as well from these professors that we had, that they had that idea, you know, in them. And that that is maybe now not as... I don't know, present in the art world today. It's maybe the artists is getting a little bit more attention again. What's interesting that you bring that up though, because like I'm thinking, sitting here thinking about like if you go into a painting studio in let's say at the San Francisco Art Institute, just because we've all went there, this the painting studio probably teaches the same way and the same techniques and the same style that they always have. But it, like in the, our new genre, or I would assume probably in interdisciplinary as well, they are constantly evolving because I mean they even have the word new in it. What was new 20 years ago is now old. And so whatever technology or technique or, or concepts that they're doing now are more about now. And so like that program versus any other program is much, feels like it's probably much more contemporary than a lot of the other programs. Well, certainly. I think it operates uh, much more closely to, um, what should I say, it's uh, more informed by uh, the global art world discussion, I guess. These exhibitions and texts, big biennials, the sort of discussions that is evolving around what art could be and the role of art in society. New genres is very connected to that dialogue, whereas many other sections of the school were more lulled into, I guess, their own sort of being of the creation of whatever artwork they were making. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I, I think it's really as simple as like you know what kind of questions are artists asking themselves and what what questions are being raised in the respective studios. You know, so it's like in new genres, as you said it yourself. You know, in the beginning, it's like we don't discuss. You know, like oh, which type of technology you know this you are using, unless that has a specific function within the within the context of the artwork or that dialogue that you are in. So I think this is something that is very important. What kind of questions are being asked both by artists and by educators? But I think there's a lot of really good art schools out there. I think New Genres was just one uh, department that was really good back then. But I think today you can find very interesting art schools that have very similar approach where professors are really sort of great in their pedagogical way of leading students to really question what it is that you want to do and why. And, you know, so all of these things that your genres represent, I think we can find today also in many art schools. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, one of the things they taught me that I still do to this day in all my critique sessions is when you're doing critiques, it should not be um, subjective. It should be more objective. And so they, I remember, I think it was probably Paul Cost that, that did, a, you were not allowed to use the words I, me, or my when doing oh. a critique because then it's about your feelings and your emotions and it's and it's more about me and not about the work itself and so by get, removing the i me and my it actually made it the conversation more about the work itself rather than the person who was doing the critiquing but i think we are as some of those thoughts are obviously valid and they're great exercises but i think we are slight we are we are working now in a slightly different time and we are entering sort of uh, ideas of care new materialism participatory practices that are sort of seeking to really uh, be embodied and to have personal perspectives. So I think it's a little bit, you know, away from that idea of the objective, which in a way it's never objective, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so I think if we were to be in your genres today, I think, or I'm, I'm, I'm sure that new genres today incorporate those types of, of discussions because those are the ones that are present today in the art world. And I think that's new genres is always going to, you know, tap into and incorporate those types of discussions. But I think what is important is that when you present your work and you are not allowed to defend it or speak, of, of course you can do that later, but, you know, when you let people discuss it without having, uh, being allowed to defend it, I think first and foremost, of course, it sort of mirrors the actual life of being in an exhibition space where you not necessarily are there. But at the same time, maybe more importantly, it, it, um, it lets you, you, you learn so much from, from listening to these type of feedback that you get there because when somebody tells you you're not allowed to speak, you relax. You're not thinking about the next thing that you're going to say or if you disagree or agree with what person, one person is saying because you know that you're not allowed to speak anyway. And that type of relaxation opens your mind and lets you listen. And that's where you learn so much from it. So it's not only to mirror what the real life is about, but it's also, it could be used in any type of education. I think it's also something that we used in, I did a, some kind of pedagogy course at the end of my PhD. And, um, and we had a really great seminar on feedback. And the one other thing that I, um, that was really great there that actually Nushanos didn't bring in so much was that when some, when one person says something, about the artwork that is presented and you agree with what that person says when it's your time to talk you don't have to repeat it because we already know it so you can add on with some of your perspectives but if it's already said in the room and you don't have anything else to say then you don't have to speak you don't, you don't have to have like 20 people saying the same and that also creates a really effective and nice environment because then you don't have to listen to the same over and over and people have to really be smart about what they're saying, what type of feedback they're giving, because it has to be either very special and something that nobody else have seen or not at all. You know what I mean? So it also gives a little bit of responsibility to the person giving feedback. I know. I always hated being at the end of the group critique because everybody had already said everything really poignant. And I was like, I got nothing more to add. <laughs> right. And then, then, I think then it's great to have a rule like, hey, if there's nothing more to add, that's fine. You don't, not everybody has to say anything always. Yeah, they always made us say something that drove me nuts. But yeah, I think that's misunderstood pedagogy. I think it's just, of course, you have to try to engage people that never talk in class, but you have, you have other ways of doing that. And to force them to say something when there's nothing to say, that's, that's not going to <laughs> do it easier for them. Indeed. So, okay, well, speaking of this kind of stuff about people engaging with and stuff, I'm thinking about social media. So, like, do you all use it? Do you like it? What's your sort of position on it and your engagement with it? Social media is, I feel right now, a way to get to know what's going on. It's a communication channel. I never favored social media for personal, private things. and never put out any of our kids or any of our private matter there. But for um, you know professional activities, we use it as a communication channel, basically. 
it very easy. It's a time thief. So it very easily takes too much time. So try to stay away as much as possible, actually. Okay, wait a minute. You just mentioned that you all have kids. I didn't know this. Two oh, yeah, we have two kids. And Congratulations. a dog. And a dog. And- Heard the dog. Yeah, knew about the dog. And the station wagon and the garden and everything. <laughs> you have the American dream. It's actually right there. Hey, good. Maybe and you're not in America. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes. But oh, I, I'm always fascinated about the choice for, for creative people, like whether to have kids, when to have kids, this kind of, And then, of course, does having children, um, for lack of a better word, like affect your artistic endeavors and your your sort of focus and do your you ideas and concepts change because of having children and things along this line so like how did how did having children uh affect your affect your your (laughs) careers and your life and your sort of creative output heavily (laughs) yeah 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 definitely heavily needless to say it's uh it's a great responsibility um, to be uh, to be a parent, you know, and it's uh, it's a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort goes into you know everyday things. There's a the everyday management becomes an extraordinary task in itself, and then you know multiply that by two. So, but at the same time, it teaches you something. It teaches you. It teaches you how to be focused and committed to uh, the things. Back to what we talked about, you know, like that's uh, really what you care for. Um, so, um, I guess you you either become more pragmatic or you don't become more pragmatic about things that uh, matter to you. You can go both ways. You can you can get lost in it, but you can also sort of. Uh, get better organized at it. Yeah. Meaning your artistic practice, right? Because that's the kind of the key theme. I think also the kids are partly why we're in Norway. Because Norway is great that way. It sort of the school's free, kindergarten's free, almost free at least. Our parents are here to help us out. All of those things. So basically, well, one parent. <laughs> yeah, but two parents until recently. So basically, we were, you know, after San Francisco Art Institute, we packed our things in four suitcases. Whatever didn't fit in those four suitcases, we either gave it away or we sold it. And we were just going from residency to residency for like three years. We didn't have a place to live. All our books we sent to my dad's and he put them in the cellar, but that was the only thing we kept. Everything else, we just got rid of it. And we were just jumping around Paris, you know, and Berlin and a couple of other places. And really not having a rent, you know, not having any kind of regular place to live. Two suitcases per person or two suitcases between the two of you? No, Choose four it, together. Four together, two per person, because that was the <laughs> that was the allowance for the transatlantic for transatlantic pl- planes. But also, we had remember we had a lot of technical equipment, that so at also, least one suitcase full of technical equipment. Well, and we also our studio, pretty much mobile studio, mobile studio, pretty much fitted in uh, in a backpack. We right. even gave a like workshop at CCA how to be a mobile, mobile artist. Artist, <laughs> and we had. Literally, like our studio fitted in our backpack. And we got pregnant on one of the residencies. And that's when we understood that we have to think seriously about (laughs) where do we want to live and (laughs) what are we going to do? Because that life of bouncing around with the residencies, I I just in the past like five years found out that that was like a thing you could do. And I'm like, God damn it. Why didn't I do that when I was young? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was very glad that we did that. And we definitely don't crave that now. We're done with it. You know what I mean? It's just so good. It's like, okay, we really did it really hard the way that, you know, so much that we don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say, I've heard about a bunch of residencies that actually allow you to now to bring children as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, that could be a one thing to do, but yeah, we we actually we were in residency at Berkeley. In yeah, that's right. Seventeen yeah. with our children, so they went to school there. We were there for half a year. Connected to the uh, so, UC, though, to uh, the university. So yeah, so we we've done it. 
too. Yeah. As a matter of fact, twice. Yeah. We've done another residency well. <laughs> for three months in Chicago with children, but they were then small, so they were in kindergarten old. Yeah. How old are your kids now? 14 and 11. Yeah, that's more difficult at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they would not want to be ripped away from their friends. No, 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 that no. 2017 was the last train, you know. Yeah. We we get warnings now. Don't ever. Don't even again. think about it. <laughs> yeah, don't even think about it. You can go visit. Yeah. But, yeah. And I they're also, know. unfortunately, allergic to art. So. Wait, wait what? <laughs> Well, see, that and that goes back to like my first question. Of, yeah, I like, know. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah, we've overdone you know, it. Like, you know, how how did your pay, you know, your parents affect you kind of thing? So like you you all have turned around and had the non-artistic children. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they are actually both very artistic. They're very artistic, but they but hate they, they hate exhibitions, exhibitions like exhibitions. visual art specifically, they don't like. Because they it's so boring, they are so boring to go to museums, you know. They'll grow out of it. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. a time that I I didn't want to do that kind of stuff, and and then you you find they'll find their own path back to it. Is really definitely, yeah, 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 that's right. Like your optimism, <laughs> I, you know, you got to be optimistic, or else the world could just crush your spirits. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've got so, okay. One question that I have because I saw it on your CVs that I was just sort of like, wow, you have a piece in the Whitney collection. Is that correct? That is correct. That is um, congratulations. Uh, it, it's a it's a Whitney's artport. It's a collection of early internet works. I don't care. If you have a piece in the Whitney, that's amazing. Yeah, it's actually a very important piece. It's an important piece for us, and it's an important piece for time and for the time. And it is important. Uh, it's actually a whole show that we curated at the Eyes of March in New York in two thousand and two. Because we were invited to curate a show that was solely uh, presented online. And this is something that we, yeah, very enthusiastically responded to. And um, a few years later, yeah, we found it in uh, Whitney's collection. And it's still there. You just found it there. That's fabulous. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little bit like the art. The internet art, the early internet art around 2000, it's sort of, what should I say? It's not never got really institutionalized. Until it got institutionalized. Until, <laughs> until <laughs> it's... And died. <laughs> and, until it got institutionalized and died, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was a very important and interesting time. That was, again, this idea of pushing the technology and that art could sort of be part of that development and to figure out what the internet could be for for art or if that was a platform at all to consider so that was very it's very interesting very interesting years that's actually how we start to collaborate internet art mm. yeah net art as it was called i remember taking a course in san francisco about like creating art on the internet you know, it was yeah yeah but it's sort of net art had basically a lot of conceptual um, ideas about how it should be based on the internet on the networks you know to take to take advantage of the network structure and to be bypassing the institution to get to the user or to the audience without any kind of curator or institution that was more like a male art you know that you could go directly to the audience and artists could collaborate across the globe and yeah so there were many many nice ideas around it mm. And particularly very important in the time that Dragon was working from Yugoslavia, certain type of propaganda came out and other voices were were silenced. Sadly, still true. Yeah. Because I'm in America right now. So like, yeah. So like, how do you feel about like, what's, what's the sort of pushing forward, the sort of post COVID and post all this kind of stuff? Like, I mean, so you all are, you know, working with hard research. You're also trying to do pushing technologies and the boundaries and stuff. So like, do you feel like it's all going to sort of fall back into place once you think COVID's all done? Or do you think there's going to be sort of a lot of this more hybrid online stuff and in-person stuff? Like, what, you know, how do you see the future, I guess? About the, the arts uh, yeah, I, I always say like arts world, art industry. I'm not sure what word, but like the you know the future of like 
because a lot of galleries are closing, you know, art fairs did their online. Do you feel like there's going to be some hybridization of this or is it sort of just going to fall back to the way it was? And and how does that sort of change your perspective on like what you're going to make, knowing or thinking that things are going to go in one direction or another? Not entirely sure. I mean, I think in one perspective, if you think about this sort of like the, the way that things are... Uh, Closing down culture is, of course, the first thing to close down, you know, once we have to take care of contamination. And so it's, you know, more and more art spaces are dying. But on the other hand, for global uh, warming and the environment, I guess the digital in some sense could help reduce travel. And yeah, so, but of course, the server parks are producing there footprints. I'm hoping that we could continue to work in the cross-section between art and science and technology and work with uh, other forms of research. We have a couple of artistic research projects lined up where we uh, collaborate with many different scholars and researchers and technologists. And I think that is one way forward, at least, to find new questions. All right. Well, just to sort of wrap this all up, so like, do you have any topics you all want to talk about that I haven't even thought to ask you about? Because <laughs> I don't know everything. I just look up with whatever's available online. I think um, we covered it mostly yeah. for my part, at least. <laughs> yeah. Part, yeah. yeah I mean, maybe just to kind of add to the last question, the answer, a tangible answer is that. You know, we are in the process of uh, working on um, on a large exhibition right now in San Francisco in next year. So this is kind of in our immediate future plans. This is how we want to see future, and this is where the future is kind of you know teasing us to, to see it that way because we have worked on that exhibition hard for uh, such a long time that we'd be very sad if that closes down. We'd be very sad, you know, exactly. That would have to... It's been postponed for a couple of times already. If it it would be available only online because the online just doesn't make any sense for that exhibition. Yeah. So, um, and um, if I can say that I personally still hope and expecting that, you know, the ability to to meet uh, the audience physically in a physical space will, will continue in future, not only for my own egoistic reasons, but really because I think that this is how we are built. We are how our social body works uh, the best. I mean, this is something that we are reading about in newspapers, about the screen fatigue, about all kinds of things. People are, you know, keen on getting back to the office, you know, because this is not only because we really long for that kind of, you know, social chit-chat, by the water cooler, but this is also because the great ideas are coming forward, you know? So we've lived for so long in particular way that we, our habits are so deeply rooted in the way that our innovation is working, the way that our creativity is working, the way that our dialogue is conducted. So yes, some kind of hybridization, you know, like the, the technology is always to support it, but I don't think that we will stop physically interacting and visiting museums, uh, theaters, concerts. I think that that's extremely important. We just came back from a concert of um, our son had the concert with the Philharmonic Orchestra. That was just amazing. I mean, like, you know, that just cannot be compared to the screen uh, experience. At the same time, it's really nice that we can have a chat. Yeah. Across the Atlantic. (laughs) And that's what I'm wondering about is like the sort of a, a sense of a hybridization versus, you know, like the, the old traditions, uh, you know, a lot of them need to be revamped for sure. Um, you know, even art fairs for, you know, for their positive and negative attributes uh, all need to be sort of rethought and revised, uh, you know, I think after all this. Definitely. I think, uh, yeah. I think we definitely have 100% better uh a grip on digital presentations, digital seminars, digital education, all of these things, they became much better very quickly. So I think we have seen an opportunity for how we can do those things much better. 
And we no longer think of it as an impossibility to have an online meeting or an online seminar. Before it was maybe thought of as an impossibility. So I think we opened the space for what can be done online and what can't be done online. Indeed. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you so much Thank for so engaging much for us for having this. having us on your program. It's very much uh, appreciated. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts community is at the core of our mission for the podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website wisefoolpod.com.